So what does the Bible say about the crown? What does the Bible say about the notion of monarchy? And what is 1 Samuel chapter 8, often taken to be an anti-monarchical text, really about? These are the questions that we're going to talk about today, and uh, I hope you gain some insight from them. Let's begin with a word of prayer, then we'll deal with some housekeeping issues, and then we'll get to the substance of the video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down our carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and thine holy good and life-creating spirit, but now and ever to the age of ages. Amen. So first of all, I would really appreciate your prayers for a productive Lent. I've been working uh, on some personal issues for the past week or so, which is why I haven't made a video. Uh, I would like to make videos more often, of course. However, I don't feel all that bad because the last video I did make was 10 hours long, so that's still over an hour of content per day. Um, I'm hoping to, at some point, learn how to split these things up and upload them uh, according to the individual topic discussed therein. That way they're more easily accessible to a wider audience. Uh, but that's something that will come in the future by God's will. Uh, so I do appreciate your prayers. Uh, also, I am very happy to say that on my uh, Patreon, remember the tier three of my Patreon guarantees at least an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion about whatever topic you want to talk about uh, the over Zoom or equivalent. Um, and that's $20 on Patreon, that's $25 on YouTube because YouTube takes a higher cut. Uh, but I have adjusted my calendar to expand the range of times in which I'm available to speak. And this is going to allow me to take more calls, and it's going to allow me to take calls at a uh, more amenable time for many of you because I know people live all over the planet and some of the times that I've had so far have just been too restricted for people to really take advantage of this feature. So if you want to support the channel, I'd appreciate become, you becoming a patron. But of course, I am uh, delighted that you're just here to begin with. And uh, I'm very happy to say again that ads have been removed because of all of your generosity. So thank you so much. Um, it's incredibly gracious of you. And, and I'm, I'm genuinely um, touched by your support. Um, so, uh, what is the biblical teaching about the nature of the crown? And what is 1 Samuel chapter 8 all about? So, the fundamental issue is really this. Deuteronomy chapter 17, in the days of Moses, speaks of a day when Israel will be permitted to crown for themselves a king. And let me just read for you the specific language that Deuteronomy 17 uses, because I think the language that it uses actually undermines some of the responses that uh, advocates of monarchy uh, have used to uh, address the criticisms on the basis of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now keep in mind, Deuteronomy 17, it is written in the context of the description of the construction of Israelite society as a whole. Deuteronomy is the omega point of Israel's development through the wilderness. You'll remember that in the wilderness, Israel is described as a growing organism in the womb of its mother. Moses says, have I been the one who's to, who is to bear uh, and struggle with Israel and its birth from the womb? Of course, Israel spends 40 years between their exodus and their inheritance of the land, and this corresponds to the 40 weeks of a normal human 
pregnancy, one of the many inbuilt features which reflects the innate symbolism that God has woven through the creation. Now, in Exodus, Israel is born out of water. In Exodus chapter 17, we see there's water that comes forth from a, uh, from a rock when Moses strikes the rock. And there's many things that are going on here, but this is the alpha point, and Israel is born as a nation. They're described as being born in a nation in a number of places in the Pentateuch. And then in Deuteronomy, what we're dealing with is Israel as it has developed into a mature society. So throughout scripture, you have this dyad, which spiritually signifies the distinction between the first creation and the glorified creation, the old covenant, the new covenant, the first Adam and the last Adam. And this is present at many different levels of the scriptural narrative arc. So for example, the first covenant is spiritually signified by the giving of the Torah in Exodus chapter 20, and the last covenant is spiritually signified by the renewal of that covenant in Exodus chapter 34. But it's also true that the first covenant corresponds to the giving of the Sinai law in Exodus, and the last covenant is spiritually signified by the renewal of that law in the book of Deuteronomy. So what happens in Exodus is God directly dictates the law to Moses and to Israel through Moses. It's word for word what God has spoken. Now, for 40 years, Moses has been adjudicating cases on the basis of this divine instruction. And in the process of adjudicating those cases, the Torah has soaked down into his bones and his blood. He has meditated on the inner unity of that Torah. He has seen the relationship that apparently unrelated cases have to each other. And thus he has perceived the genuine nature of the creation in a deeper way. And what that allows him to do is to speak out the Torah such that when Moses is speaking, it is God speaking. Deuteronomy is uh, almost entirely a sermon of Moses, and it ends with a song of Moses. Now, song is glorified speech. There's almost no liturgical music in the tabernacle period, but David arranges a liturgical orchestra in the tabernacle of Zion, which... Uh, predominates throughout the temple where there's psalm singing and so forth. And we see this contrast also in the two givings of water from the rock, because in the first giving of water from the rock, Moses strikes it physically, and in the last one, Moses again strikes it physically, but he was supposed to speak to it. And this is part of what it means for an organism to develop from its infancy into its maturity. When the most important thing that happens in the early stage of life is the acquisition of language. You will notice that the period at which a child acquires language seems to be correlated with the beginning of its having memories which are going to persist through the rest of his or her life. What we have in the contrast between the generation of the Exodus and the generation of Deuteronomy is the circumcision of the flesh of Egypt. In Joshua chapter 5, we learn that Israel has not been circumcised for the 40 years it's been in the wilderness. And we are told that in the circumcision at Gilgal, they are unrolling the shame of Egypt from the nation. Because in the wilderness, God was engaged intimately and passionately with the affairs of the nation Israel. When a child is being brought up, 
when it commits a sin that its parents are aware of, it's immediately punished, or it ought to be in a gracious and charitable way. The response, the negative response is straightforward, the connection is clear, and it is closely connected in time. This happens throughout the period of the wilderness wanderings, and what this means is that there is a transformation of a culture which grew up in the idolatrous life of Egypt and a culture defined by the second generation, the generation which inherits the land, which is defined not by the building of the idolatrous store cities of Pharaoh, but rather by the life of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, which is the center, both physically and ideologically, of the life of the nation Israel as a whole. You will notice that almost all, and I would argue, in fact, all, of the laws that are given in the Torah pertain in one way or another, and usually the connection is quite straightforward, to the specific condition that is created out of the sanctuary in which the glory of God concretely dwells. So the laws of cleanness and uncleanness, these only matter because there's a sanctuary in Israel. Ritual impurity almost doesn't matter except with reference to your access to the sanctuary. So it matters somewhat. There are some details where it affects what you are permitted to do, but almost none. Almost all of the direct implications of the contraction of ritual impurity have to do with your ability to directly engage with God at his house. And remember, the building of the house of God is simultaneously the building of the house of Israel. Now, why is that the case? When do two subjects come to dwell in one house? It's in a marriage, which in fact is what the Sinai Covenant is all about. The Sinai Covenant is celebrated by a feast, Exodus chapter 24. If you are what you eat, when you eat the same thing, you become uh, interior to each other. And when two uh, subjects are married, brought into the same family, they become members of a single household. And what is often overlooked, but I think we need to pay attention to, is the intimate connection that this really has has with the notion of adoption. Well, what happens when the bride is taken into the household of the bridegroom? She's not only married to the bridegroom, but she is adopted. She acquires a new family name. She acquires a new genealogy, as it were. She becomes not only the bride of Billy Bob, but she becomes the daughter of Billy Bob's dad. That's why Peter Lightheart says that the only way to really understand the convergence of imagery throughout the Old Testament is in a Trinitarian accent. The father brings up a daughter to give as bride to his son. Now, the reason that there's this idea of brother-sister and uh, its convergence with marriage is because most of the relationships that define the notion of the sister bride are adoptive in nature. Now, Sarai is literally the half-sister of Abram, but at Sinai, because of the growth and outward ex uh, expansion of the human family, as remember, as organisms develop, they become 
both more integrated, but also more distinct, because every distinction is a new opportunity for a new kind of unity. And so, as humanity expands, certain kinds of unions require new degrees of separation, which then permit a new kind of unity and integration and marriage. King Solomon speaks of my sister, my bride, and he's speaking, of course, of the daughter of Pharaoh here, like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, Solomon says in the Song of Songs. And so the whole story of history is the father's creation of a daughter, that is the creation, his growing up of that daughter so that she might be given in marriage to the only begotten son with whom she is united. So all things are gathered into the church, which is gathered into the heart of Christ, which is the source of her purity, her perfection, and her glory. Now, in the process of discussing this, I've used a lot of language that has to do with the notion of the body politic. We've talked before about how our language has more significance than we are immediately aware of. Language is simply built this way, such that when language grows and expands, it actually gives interpretation and clarity on the concepts signified by the words that we use. So when we say body politic, one of the things that we are implying here is that the intercommunion of persons in a large-scale network, like a nation or a city, is a manifestation of the same sort of thing that is manifest in an individual human body. You'll remember that the Eucharist is the body of Christ, and yet the body of Christ is totally present in each particle of the Eucharist. The universal church is totally present in each local church, bishop and people. This kind of relationship is pervasive throughout the creation because it is internal to the life of God. It is one of the ways in which God's way of being is reflected out into the world. So, the human body is a single organism, and that provides language by which we can understand the interconnectedness of a nation, and but also that provides language in which we can understand the interconnectedness of the whole human family as it is unified in the church. But then, of course, the human family has the entire creation as its feast by which mankind becomes joined to the world and by which the world is then glorified in man. So the whole creation is like the body of God. The whole creation is joined to the incarnate word. And body is all about communion. You know, in the human body, what we have is we have many different kinds of material existence, kinds of material existence which in many cases could even exist in principle independently. Many bacteria are essential to the functioning of a hu healthy human body, but could exist apart from the human body. They're in a symbiotic relationship with us. They're integral to the functioning of a whole. So what we have is, through the single unifying principle, which is human nature, many disparate kinds of created existence are joined together, placed in relation to each other, and serve a single purpose, which is the operation of a human being in the image and towards the likeness of God. Now, God is reflected at every level of existence, so a human being is body, soul, and spirit. That is a Trinitarian echo. But then you expand outwards to a family, and a family is a Trinitarian echo. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26-28 
describes creation in the image of God with let us, in context being the creation of man, single organism, M-A-N with a capital M, the one human family, the one man, as in Ephesians, the one new man who is born out of Christ. Man is male, female, and offspring. And we see it expand outwards from there. And then you have a city. Well, a city is described in many cases as a body. But you will notice a city is also described in many cases as a family, as if, as if it were a single household. It has a bridegroom. The city is described as the bride. And so Christ marries the new Jerusalem. He is the bridegroom of that single bride. In Isaiah, we see that cities are described as brides. They're unfaithful or they are faithful. And so we see the way that this language kind of works both upwards and downwards. The human body provides language in which we can understand the operation of a family. But also the family provides language by which we can understand the operation of the human body. The Family provides language by which we can express the nature of a city. But the city also provides language by which we can understand and explain the nature of the family. They work in both directions. And this bidirectionality allows us to understand both the particularity and the unity which all these concepts have with each other. Now the important point as to the main subject of this video, quote-unquote is the role that the king plays in relation to the whole. You will see that throughout the scripture, the king is spoken of in a way that we would still naturally speak of him today. He is the head of the nation. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just as the body is the unification of many disparate kinds of created existence, in relation to a single purpose where each aspect or part of the body serves that single purpose in relation to every other organ of that body, almost the same is true with respect to the existence of the nation as a whole. The king has the significance that he has in relation to the unifying role he plays in the purpose and motion of the society as a whole. And this is the first important point that I want to make. I've expressed this before in a video I made on the development of uh, state and society in biblical theology. But we have to set aside this idea that we have, that what we're talking about is a given society which is selecting among different models for statehood. In the scriptures, there really are no different models for statehood. What you have is you have statehood that has a distinct form according to the developmental place that the society has at a given point of time. So when you look at the book of Judges, what you find in the book of Judges is not that you have a republic as if there was an integrated kingdom of, or an integrated state of Israel, which was republican in nature. No, what you have is you have independent city-states, independent territory. Each, of, each plot of land is connected to a city. And each city has the elders of the gate. Each city is effectively, when we're talking in political terms, independent. And yet they exist in relation to each other. They exist in a kind of league, to use a term from uh, Hellenistic history. And their unity that they have is centered on the unity of their profession of the one God. And you will find the same thing in terms of the structure of many societies throughout history. 
Many of the societies, or most of these societies, really begin in this very way. You have a, a league or a confederation of city-states, which nevertheless speak a single language, which allows there to be a single circulatory pattern. You know, if you can understand each other, that means you can influence each other, which is the most important aspect of language. And you'll remember that in Genesis chapter 11, we have the tower and the city corresponding to the lip and the language. Lip is the god you confess. David says, I will not take his name on my lips. Speaking of false gods, Isaiah 19 says that in the Messianic age, the nations in Israel will be of one lip. Zephaniah in Zephaniah 3 says that uh, the Messianic age, that across the world, there will be one lip calling on the name of the Lord. That's That phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, is connected very, very closely with this notion of lip. When Isaiah 6 is speaking of idolatry, it's about Israel being of un clean and impure lip and he's touched by the Eucharist and that transforms his impurity and makes him an image of God reflecting his glory through the spirits indwelling. Jeremiah chapter 1 the word of God is placed in his mouth you could go on and on and on your culture corresponding to your language flows out from the God you worship in the book of Judges Israel is oppressed by the various nations because they begin by worshiping the gods of those nations. What kind of civilization do you want? The kind of civilization that you will have will be determined by what you value most in the world. What is most precious to you and the kind of thing that that is will determine downstream the way that you will live. And so there is a unity of language because of a harmony or an identity of your worship. You worship the same pantheon or the same god. And that is always and everywhere connected to the liturgical life of the respective nation about which we are speaking. So what is it that grows Israel up through time? What is it that on a larger scale echoes the growth of Israel from Sinai to the inheritance at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? Well, it is the single sanctuary. According to Deuteronomy chapter 12, Israel is to be gathered around the place which the Lord your God shall choose. Now, the emphasis here is really on the notion of divine choice. We've had throughout Deuteronomy the notion of divine election. God will choose X or Y. He chooses a people. He chooses a priestly tribe. And here he chooses a sanctuary. Because choice means that the initiative is coming from God. And as the initiative and motion is coming from God, it is his character which is disclosed. Israel's liturgical life comes as a response to God's self-disclosure. And Israel is shaped out according to the mode of that self-disclosure. God descends and makes his name known. He chooses a particular place at which he will call the nation to remember those deeds by which he made himself known. He sets his name in this place. He makes his glory to dwell in this place. And this is the one banner which the nations will look towards. And what that means is that though we have 12 tribes and many families within those tribes, if Israel, was, if Israel observed the law to the letter, well, they would be going three times a year to the central sanctuary. And when they went there, they'd be meeting with, with other Israelites from other tribes. They'd be getting to know each other better. They'd be intermarrying with each other. As Israel grew up as a nation, they would become 
more intimately bound up in a single whole. This is why throughout the book of Judges, you have many stories which reflect the fundamental problems that arise out of disobedience to God's divine instruction on this point. Why do you think that you have the idea or the story of the Shibboleth in the book of Judges? This is where the word Shibboleth or the, uh, the term Shibboleth comes from. There's a difference in accent between two parts of this one nation. What that reflects is a failure to speak to each other through the name of the Lord. Because Israel is always going after idols. They're not gathering to this one sanctuary, which will then shape out the mode of their life. We see in the book of Judges that Israel fails to conquer all of the land which God has allotted to them. Now, while this seems like a relatively small sin, it's only a very small portion of land, what we discover in the book of Samuel is that this very portion of land is a key bridge which would link together two parts of the one nation. And the failure to bridge these two parts of the one nation means that the nation fails to grow up in the way that God had desired it to grow up. The coalescence of a single identity rooted in the one God and expressed in constant engagement and intercommunion in peace with each other has been inhibited. It happens, but it's been inhibited. And so what does one find in the book of Samuel and forward? Violence. And this is the story which governs the failure of the story of the throne in the book of Samuel. Now, in order to understand how all of this ties together, I want to read to you the passage in Deuteronomy 17, which I, I think I may have promised to read this earlier, and then I got distracted, as almost always happens. Um, Deuteronomy uh, 17, verse 13. Now, remember, the emphasis throughout the book has been on choice, divine choice, divine election. All the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again referring to the preceding passages about priesthood. So we see that Israel's existence relative to the king flows out from their proper behavior relative to the liturgical life governed by their priesthood and centered in the sanctuary. Now verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, now pay attention to this passage, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then there are specific regulations that are unfolded concerning the kind of person that this king has to be. The king isn't to acquire horses for himself. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, specifically, we're told he's not to go to Egypt to acquire these chariots. Remember, Egypt was a conquering power, but it was a conqueror in a kind of archaic sense. Uh, later empires would at least make the claim to occupy and exercise sovereignty over the conquered territories. At best, in antiquity, most of the time, there are always exceptions, but most of the time, the civilization which was the ostensible conqueror would at, uh, levy tribute upon the conquered and subdued city. 
all this really is is just um, dressed up and hyped up gangsterism. Egypt goes into the Near East. It uh, levels some cities. It kills some people. It causes uh, unhappiness and bloodshed, and it steals some gold. This is dressed up in fancy language. It's celebrated openly, but at bottom, we don't have anything more honorable than a common thief. And its capacity to exercise this faculty of dressed-up thievery is rooted and grounded in its ability to wage a successful invasion, which has its uh, military component in chariots. So, chariots are very important in Scripture because they are an aggressive military feature. Israel is not to acquire chariots. Israelis can acquire some horses. You need them for aspects of agriculture. But the multiplication of horses centered in the royal family, this is the kind of thing which reflects the ambitions of an expansive and conquering power who seeks to conquer by blood. We also have the requirement that he is not to acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. In the book of Kings, Solomon violates this commandment. Now, uh, the prohibition here is on royal polygamy. Uh, in Leviticus, there's a prohibition on polygamy. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 refers to Elkanah's two wives, and it uses the language in Leviticus about the prohibition on marrying uh, two quote-unquote sisters. But a cogent argument has and, uh, uh, and ought to be mounted that this is not a prohibition on marrying just two biological sisters. No, because uh, marriage coincides with the theology of adoption, this is actually a prohibition on polygamy outright. Now, if you marry two wives, you're genuinely married to both of them. Just like if you cut off your hand, you've genuinely lost your hand. You're not going to grow up back, at least most of the time. But you ought not to have done it. It's going to cause you a great deal of pain and suffering that you would not have had otherwise. But why is the king specifically tempted to acquire many wives. Well, what this is, is realpolitik. You secure marriages. Uh, you secure marriage alliances. You're bound together with many different nations. Even though you're only one guy, you got many wives corresponding to these many nations. But you will notice that these many nations are not integrated in relation to each other. No, it's not as if there is a healed family of nations signified in a single spiritual bride which is then joined singly to the one bridegroom. No, they're independently married to the king. And so we see in the Book of Kings that Solomon, he's divided the nations in relation to each other. They're each placed in an independent relationship to him. He's multiplying chariots. Allegedly, he's, this is supposed to be a military deterrent. But engaging in the international arms trade uh, rolls outwards and then rolls right back and slaps his son, Rehoboam. Many practical lessons can be acquired by paying attention to the details of Scripture. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What's the unifying principle of all of this? Unifying principle of all of this is the idea that the king, by his own power, is responsible for the protection of the nation. The acquisition of excessive reserves of wealth permits him to exercise soft power. The acquisition of uh, 
weapons of warfare which can be used aggressively at least is a military deterrent. It's militarization which provides for a deterrent. But it never works out this way. This is always the theory that militarization is a deterrent, but it never really is. If you study history, you will find almost always what this does is it creates a security spiral. That's the term that um, international relations theory uses, where two powers, they slightly overestimate the aggression of the other power. Constantly, back and forth, tit for tat, one power expels one spy, or ex expels one diplomat, the other power expels two diplomats, and so on and so forth. And it just rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls until ultimately you've got a conflagration. This is what John Mearsheimer calls the tragedy of great power politics. And it is a tragedy in conventional international relations theory because according to the conventional theory, there is no God in heaven. Heaven is the throne room. There is no rules-based international order, according to the conventional theory, because there is no sovereign who can enforce those rules. But according to Christianity, there is a God in heaven who neither slumbers nor sleeps, and it is he who is responsible for the protection of his people when they call upon his name. And he acts when they call on him. If the temple was the place where God said his name, it was the place to which Judah was supposed to turn when they were in trouble. But as Peter Lightheart points out, throughout the history of Judah, you have kings going in and stealing gold from the temple to pay off foreign invaders. But they're not calling on God until the time of Hezekiah. And then God acts miraculously to liberate Hezekiah from Sennacherib. And this is attested in Sennacherib's own uh, 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 inscriptions. Remember, Sennacherib surrounds the city of Jerusalem. He's got them shut up. There's no way out. And then God intervenes and he's forced to retreat. And Sennacherib tells us in one of his, I forget uh, the name of the um, Stella that in which this is engraved, but it's remarkable. He describes how uh, he smashed this nation and that nation and, and that other nation. And then I shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. Now, obviously, this is propaganda. He's giving the best spin on it that he can. But it's an amazing course, uh, corroboration of the biblical story and underscores the fact that this is the real true world. Let's go to more recent history. The Battle of the Bulge. Why do the nations not call upon God? They assume that he won't answer. Well, they almost never test that. In the Battle of the Bulge, the Allies were going to launch a major military uh, operation, and yet the weather was terrible, and it was going to delay that operation by a significant amount of time, which, of course, which was going to have strategic effects downstream. So General Patton, he had a, uh, a, a, a priest write out a prayer. He commanded his soldiers to pray this prayer. He's made fun of for it. But God acted against the predictions, against anticipation. God cleared the skies almost immediately. Why are we so sure that God will not act when we never test that proposition? Throughout the history of the church, God has acted many times directly when his people call upon him to protect them and guarantee their security. Now, I'm emphasizing this because this is the central issue which governs 
Israel's struggle with kingship. The question is fundamentally, upon what basis is kingship legitimated? Is it legitimated by the mandate of heaven? Is a king a rightful king because he has the mandate from God? Is the king the uh, thread through which divine sovereignty flows into the world? And we affirm that authority because of our affirmation of God's supremacy? Or is the king an idol? An idol being an aspect of creation which we worship as if it had independent existence. Is the king the guarantor of our security or is God? Those are two very different states of affairs. Do we have to depend on the king to militarize? To create uh, an expansive and powerful, to use modern terms, military-industrial complex to deter foreign invaders? Does he have to play the game of realpolitik? Do we smile at our allies' faces while stabbing each other in the back? I mean, we, we talk about friendship among nations today, but, you know, we're all spying on each other. It's all a lie. We're not friends. We hate each other. We don't trust each other at all. These are two fundamentally opposed visions of the way that the world works. Faith is not just trust that God is going to work out stuff in our personal life. Everyone is called to trust God. From the highest king to the lowest pauper. And that means trust, real trust. People sometimes, even people who are, you know, very good, good pious people, just I think out of bad intellectual habits, act like this is naive, right? This is, this is naive, which of course implies, if it's naive, genuinely, well then this implies that Christianity, when it comes down to it, is false. That God or at least, according to some strange permutation of doctrine, that God guarantees divine action on a personal level, but not on a large-scale or corporate level. We are to trust God when the stakes are at the highest. That goes for the king as well as for the average person. So the key phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is... Uh, in verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, when you possess it and dwell in it. Okay, so God had delineated very specific borders for the nation Israel. And while we talk about the conquest of Canaan, it is a very unusual kind of warfare. It is not a normative kind of warfare. There are specific regulations in the Pentateuch about the kind of war that you can wage that are explicitly differentiated from the conquest of Canaan. It's a very distinct kind of warfare. And you will notice that God behaves in ways that um, are not normative for Israel, for example, in the book of Chronicles, when an external power comes and invades. Okay, so that's convention in, in conventional terms, when this external power comes and they have to fight on Israelite soil, that's what a just war is all about. Right? You've got an invading power, and you know what I'm saying here may or may not be um, timely, but it's not formulated because of the current political situation. I don't know that anyone would be done any good uh, by me commenting on the current political situation, except to say that we all must pray. And I, I would say trust trust what Metropolitan Onufri says. He's a very holy person. In any case, uh, 
But when Israel is, quote-unquote, conquering Canaan, it's a very unusual kind of warfare. God does not usually miraculously knock the walls of Jericho outwards. That's archaeologically documented, by the way. It's pretty cool. The walls have fallen outwards. It's a very unusual state of, state of affairs, and the city has been burned. The city has been burned with uh, the vats full of grain, which corresponds precisely to what the book of Joshua tells us. And because of the conventional chronology, they say, well, the biblical story, uh, it seems that every detail of the biblical story is confirmed, but the biblical story is made up because uh, it happened too early. You know, maybe Prima Fasci indicated that the chronology is wrong. Okay, sorry for the tangent. Um, but God doesn't usually act that way. He rained stones from heaven in the conquest of Canaan. God doesn't usually act that way. He stops the sun in the heavens. God doesn't usually do this. It's an unusual kind of warfare, which is not normative for their normal national life, even in cases where their warfare is legitimate. Look at the way that Israel uh, engages in warfare, for example, in the battle against Zerah the Ethiopian. That's a more normative kind of warfare. Book of Numbers and Deuteronomy provides regulations for normative warfare. That is, when you're responding to a power which has violated your uh, 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 your territory and you are acting to defend your homes and families. Now, in the book of Joshua, Israel, by divine power, conquers the majority of the land that God allots to them, but they don't conquer all of it. And as I mentioned, the territory that they don't conquer is strategically and culturally quite significant. And it is precisely their failure to obey God exactly that leads to the great crises of the united monarchy, which causes it to cease to be a united monarchy. I can't remember if I mentioned this before. I'm sorry about the dog snoring. <laughs> There's no way I can, I, can, I can stop it, so it is what it is. Uh, now, some advocates of, uh, of, of monarchy, and according to Scripture, have suggested that uh, the big issue in Samuel is that Israel has asked for a king like the kings of the nations. Uh, I don't think that works. And the reason I don't think that works is because the fundamental problem that is posed by those who say that 1 Samuel 8 and 10 are anti-monarchical texts is that Israel had the Pentateuch of Moses. They knew that they were permitted to ask for a king. So why, and it's not stated here that that was somehow illegitimate or it's less than the ideal. Israel not only knew they were permitted to ask for a king, but God had promised that he would send the Messianic king. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she prays for the coming of God's king because she knew the Pentateuch. She knew the Pentateuch was framed by the prophetic hope of the king Messiah. If this is the case, if the scripture actually exists in this way, then why would Israel be expected to really understand that, even though God didn't state it, that monarchy was not the way things were supposed to be? The phrase Deuteronomy 17 uses is, uh, you may... You may say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are all around me. So the phrase like the nations is used in the description of the legitimate role of kingship that uh, is permitted in the life of Israel and Judah. So I don't think it's really about the analogy with the Gentile nations per se, though the idea, if not the phrase, is certainly there. In order to understand what God wants kings to be, just look at the Messiah. The Messiah is the king of peace. He makes war on war. He breaks the bow. He turns the sword and spear into plowshares and pruning hooks. That's how he wages his warfare. Yes, he conquers the world, meaning he acquires dominion and sovereignty over the world, but he does so through the liturgical implements by which the world is made holy, by which it is engraved with the words holy to the Lord, by which it is turned into an increasing uh, uh, 
dwelling place for God by which it is made radiant with glory and beauty. Israel in both Judges and Samuel wins military victories by using agricultural tools to fight their invading oppressor. There's spiritual significance to that here. Zechariah chapter 2 speaks of the horns which have caused Israel to go into exile. This speaks of the liturgical cause of Israel's exile, the real cause of it, that is idolatry, not political affairs. Those four horns are the four horns of an altar. Language is the same. And it speaks of the preeminence of the toolmaker in relation to this cause of their exile. It is Israel's transfiguration of the world according to the purpose which they have as a creator in partnership with God that ultimately acquires sovereignty in relation to the world, such that what it means for a king to become and manifest his kingship is not bloodshed, but development, growth, what we would call economic growth. Economic growth means that there's more energy. You can mold things. If you are well-fed and well-housed, that means you've got more space to produce beautiful works of art, to build more beautiful churches, to compose richer pieces of music. In other words, when your basic needs are taken care of, the majority of your wealth is allocated to the development of the creation as the dwelling place for God. But the fundamental problem that led Israel to seek a king before the time was ripe was their failure to trust in God to do what he had promised to do. People really want a caliphate to accomplish the purpose for which God has exalted Christ. What I mean by that is that in Christendom, the role of the emperor is not predominantly to secure territory by conquest. When Constantine comes to power and he possesses the land through the cross of Christ, the preeminent act which marks him out as emperor is his reform of the society. It is God who acts in miraculous ways ways, thus marking this out as divine prerogative, to secure an inheritance, and it is the offspring of that already secured inheritance, which is then settled by a matured nation, which has head and body. In other words, it's a well-differentiated organism, which is united, but has many different parts to it, many different organs. And the unifying principle is the king, the head of state. The story of Joseph and this, uh, the story of the conquest actually are connected to each other spiritually. Both Joshua and Joseph died 110 years old. Uh, uh, Joshua is from the tribe of Joseph. And what is, it that, what is it that Joseph does? Well, he has the spirit of wisdom. And he creatively molds the world. He not only takes seed, as Noah took on the ark, but he harvests the seed. He feeds the nations with bread. He teaches wisdom. It says in the Psalms, Psalm 105, he teaches the elders with wisdom. Think that's Psalm 104 in the Septuagint. Joseph is a creator with God more than he is a conqueror. 
Joseph is a great architect. Joseph builds a culture. He builds cities. He's a builder, a creator, not a conqueror. What does it mean to exercise sovereignty? It means that the way that things are going to be ultimately falls to your choice. That is why creation and sovereignty are tied together at the hip. Because God creates the world, because it exists by his power, clearly God is the one who ultimately determines the way that it is going to exist. He gave it existence, and he determines the mode in which it exists. As creator, he is the supreme sovereign. And so we are enthroned with Jesus Christ, and we are his partners in developing, molding, and continuing to glorify and create the world. So what we see in Exodus chapter 31, Exodus 25 to 31, we see that the tabernacle is uh, dictated to Israel in seven speeches corresponding to the seven creation days. Seven times it says the Lord said to Moses, uh, and we find that thematically they correspond very tightly. The last of the seven speeches is about the Sabbath, for example. Well, then in the sixth speech corresponding to man, corresponding to the sixth creation day, we see Bezalel of Judah with a helper like Adam and a helper, Bezalel and Aholiab, Adam and Eve. Bezalel of Judah is filled with the spirit of wisdom. He is given insight into the inner natures of the raw material of the creation, and thus he is able to shape and mold that raw material to be united with the other raw material in a new and more glorious way, which is going to make it more valuable, because all of this stuff has its paradigm, its archetype in the glory of God. And the glory of God is called the riches of God's glory. When you mold things out and shape it out so that it corresponds to and echoes the glory of God, it becomes more valuable. The uh, real estate value of the tabernacle is much higher than the real estate value it would have. It were just a raw material in an uh, unorganized state. God creates ex nihilo. And then God shapes and molds and forms and brightens and glorifies that stuff which he has already created. We don't create ex nihilo, but we are his image. We shape and mold and glorify and form and brighten the stuff of the world. Bezalel is a king. Not literally, but a king figure. He's from the tribe of Judah. Why are we told that? That's the royal tribe. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. Bezalel is a creator by the Spirit. He has wisdom. Wisdom is that through which God created the world, and it is that by which kings reign, according to the Proverbs of Solomon. By me kings reign, says in the voice of Lady Wisdom. Why was it that the Ark of the Covenant would go before Israel into battle? Because that's the throne of God. It is the Ark on which God is enthroned, and God rides out on his chariots to lead Israel in that legitimate warfare they have to secure the inheritance, which he had already allotted to them. In other words, the conquest of Canaan is not the creation of a new reality. It is rather the expression in faith of the reality which God has already allotted to Israel. This has a great deal to do with the debate about faith and works. Faith is the central theme of Deuteronomy. The word is used many times, believe in the Lord your God. And yet the belief is not only symbolized or expressed, but actually has the effect that it's supposed to have through the action made on the basis of that belief. Believe in the Lord your God, therefore go and conquer the land. Do what seems impossible because what your eyes say fails to tell you the real nature of things. And if you happen to be a non-Christian, you think that sounds silly. Just think about the way that the world works. You look at a table 
Well, are you really seeing the inner nature of that table? Have you learned the most important facts about that table? No, I mean, the most important facts about that table will only reveal themselves to you with deep and um, energetic study. That's what's revealed by the... Uh, uh, by smashing particles together. It's not something which is immediately apparent on first glance. So remember what Judges is all about. Again and again, we hear this phrase, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, eyes are the instrument of judgment. That's why when it speaks of a king being good or evil, it says they did good or evil in the sight of the Lord. The tree of knowledge is the tree of kingship. It says, Discerning between good and evil is a royal prerogative in First Kings chapter 3. And that's why Eve's and Adam's eyes are opened. The first judgment they made is we should not have done that. They knew knowledge is the basis of action. And what they knew is they ought not to have acted in the way that they did. And as you shape and mold things... You rule out some possibilities, and the history of that object becomes more and more specific. So a, uh, a newly conceived fetus looks identical to every other fetus. Newborn baby looks a little bit distinct, but, I mean, babies look pretty similar to each other. As they grow older, they, become to, they come to look more and more distinct from other people. They come to mature. Their appearance and characteristics come to reflect their life history, their choices, so on and so forth. So as they mature, as they build new relations with other people that are specific and mark them out and create who they are, as they become more united, they also become more distinct. That means the longer that people are not of one mind, the more opposed they are going to be to each other. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, as time goes on, their ideas become more and more distinct, but not in a way that they're united as one. The unifying principle of the nation is the head, the king, one mind. I know it might seem like I'm jumping around, but actually there's... there's um, there's a very real connection between one phrase and the next, but you know it's just the way, just the way that 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 I do these things. So I know some people just hate the way that I talk, but I mean I suspect if you're still listening, you're probably relatively okay with it. Kingship is about sovereignty. Sovereignty is realized in military terms but also in creative development of the world. And the way that God had called Israel to behave is to recognize him as supreme king so that their possession of the land would come about through God's direct and visible action. In the book of Judges, their military successes are very often designed so that the presence of God will be perfectly obvious. You know, they're supposed to restrict the number of their soldiers to just 300. Then they smash torches and blow trumpets. That's what the, what the glory of God is like. God appears in fire and he sounds like a trumpet. You hear that in Sinai? They heard something like a trumpet. The book of Revelation, 
I heard a voice speaking to me like a trumpet behind me. That's what St. John says. Point being that this is distinctly and obviously owed to the activity and reign of God. But the great crime of the book of Judges is that Israel fails to secure the land that God had allotted to them. And the reason that they fail to secure that land is twofold, and these things are related. Number one, they fail to fulfill the mandate of Deuteronomy to transmit the profession of the one God to their children. Deuteronomy is the omega state of the nation. They're born in Exodus. They're matured in Deuteronomy. And the great theme is the transmission of the profession of God from one generation to the next. Corresponding to this is the failure of the priesthood. The priesthood acts as the father and bridegroom of Israel, the stewards of the household who manifest God's authority and presence to the nation as a whole. The nation is conceived of as a single household, which as married to God, they share that household with God. Well, the manifestation of God's act to sustain and purify that household is in the priesthood. They're the ones who not only will take care of most of the acts in sacrifice, but they will do things like they will clean up. They will, uh, they will trim the candles. They do the kind of day-to-day -day business, which is just part of living in a household properly. They do the dishes, as it were. So the failure of fathers to transmit the faith to their children is ultimately connected to the failure of the priestly tribe to transmit the faith to the fathers. Levites are spread throughout the land. There's a central sanctuary, yes, but there's also a holy convocation every week at which the Levites are supposed to teach. They're the literate tribe. They know the scriptures. They transmit the name of God as revealed in the scriptures to the nation. It's surprising to me that um, this is not more often observed. I mean, this is something I only know because James Jordan pointed it out. People act as if synagogues as an institution are obviously a second temple innovation. Well, no, Leviticus 23 tells us there's a holy convocation every Sabbath. I mean, and you might say, well, there probably wasn't a specific building. It was just gathered at one place, but... Is it really that implausible that a specific building comes to be associated with this sabbatical convocation that happens every Sabbath, at which there's reading of scriptures and teaching of the scriptures? Paternity, fatherhood, is very, very frequently associated with speech, with teaching. If God creates the world by his word, if Samuel fathers David as his son by speaking to him, does the same with Saul, well then, the failure of fathers to transmit the name of God to their children ultimately has its root in the failure of the Levites to act as father to the fathers. We read at the end of the book of Judges two dischronologized stories, meaning we're being, these are thematically important. One about a Levite who fails to protect his bride when Israel behaves like sodomites. And they rape this woman to death. And the other one is about a uh, Levite's sponsoring of idolatry. This is the grandson of Moses sponsors idolatry. And these two things are connected to each other. Failure to profess God and spirit and truth leads to the disintegration of the society. And what is ultimately the consequence of this? It's blood and warfare within the nation. The liturgical failure of Israel to be obedient to God in 
her worship produces the political crises of Israel, which lead to bloodshed and the rupture of what was meant to be a single fam family harmonized by the profession of the one name of God. They failed to go to the sanctuary thrice a year as they were supposed to do. Well, that means that they, are, they aren't talking to each other as much. They develop uh, cultural divisions, which become oppositions. They pronounce shibboleth differently, and this creates a problem. By the time we get down to the book of Samuel, we find that there is a failure on the one hand of the priestly tribe. The priestly family is defiling the consecrated women at the tabernacle who were consecrated to perpetual continence as a sign of the inviolability of God's sanctuary. But the sanctuary is spoken of in feminine terms. God built Eve. Eve is an architectural human being. And the city is a, uh, a manifestation of the bride. The inviolability of the city by external uh, invaders corresponds to the inviolability of the Israelite woman. And so... It just so happens that their violation of these Israelite women corresponds, spiritually speaking, to the Philistine conquest of territory within Israel. But there's a fundamental lack of confidence in the Israelite priesthood because of their heinous crimes against God. And then on the other hand, there are social and political divisions within the nation because of the failure to secure the key portions of territory that God had allotted to them. And so what do you find when David comes to the throne? Well, when David comes to the throne, the slander that is levied against him is he's listening just to what the family of Judah is saying. He's not listening to the other tribes. Their identity was meant to be united around a single throne only because there was already an integrated identity created out of harmony born of the common profession of one God. And this slander only hits home because the divisions were severe enough that they could be fanned into oppositions. And what happens? They descend into civil war. And then in, uh, at the end of, of, of King Solomon's reign, the tenuous unity which had taken hold just breaks apart. It says there's war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. This is the ultimate consequence of the failure to secure exactly what God had allotted to them. We are told that David was not to build the temple because he was a man of blood. Well, in a way, he was a man of blood by God's instruction. When David comes to the throne, he completes the conquest of the land. Remember, this is what God was supposed to do. This is what it means for God to be the supreme king in Israel. He is the one who goes before Israel and conquers the land. They are all joined to God in securing the conquest of the land. And then the human king whom they are supposed to crown is legitimated not through bloodshed. He is not an idol on whom they look for security because they know the king wasn't even there when they secured the land. But he's rather supposed to be legitimated through his creative energy. Solomon is a, uh, sponsors great architectural building programs. Every king was supposed to be like Solomon. There wasn't supposed to be this requirement for the king to finish the conquest of the land. That's the great issue. Well, in antiquity, it's customary in many 
uh, in, in many of the great powers, and in many ways it's still customary today that we cover it up with a kind of language of international law as if every war is just some kind of peacekeeping force and we're just uh, uh, policing the world and punishing crimes as if we don't do war anymore. Um, we all pretend there's, there are good, nice rules that we can do nice war with. But antiquity... When a new king comes to the throne, it was often customary for him to go on some kind of war of conquest. Caligula, when he was emperor, he pretended to conquer Britain. There was a coin that was minted that referred to him as the one who subdued Britain. Why do they do this? It is because bloodshed, the sword, force, and violence was understood to be the key fact which legitimated the reign of the king. Spiritually, this corresponds to many of the traditions of far antiquity about the world being created out of warfare. Now, in reality, the world is created from music. We can see the connection between music and warfare. Even in, uh, uh, in relatively recent times, you've got drummers who march with the troops. In antiquity, you have trumpets who blast with the troops. There's a connection between music and warfare. Music differentiates the world and molds the raw material of the world into different kinds of natures according to the different resonance of the notes that are being played. And the increasing harmony that develops in music through time signifies the development of the world as an organism, which is both more integrated and more internally differentiated than it was in preceding stages of its development. It is the kind of analogy, music and warfare, that you see between uh, conquest and creativity when israel finishes the conquest of the land it says the land had rest well what does god do for six days he creates and then he has rest you can see there's a correspondence here you can see why other nations corrupted the memory of god's six-day creation by uh, uh by, by inventing stories of primordial divine warfare but the persistence of this notion of primordial divine warfare as being the origin of the world, has very strong political implications. The king is the one who ascends up the temple, the architectural holy mountain. He is the link between the heavenly court, which rules the world, and the terrestrial world, which is the world which is ruled. He's the one who stands in between the two. He occupies the middle of the ladder to heaven. Now, if he is to transmit the life of heaven to the life of the world. If that is what it means for the world to have order, then if the world was created out of warfare, then that is what the king must do when he comes to the throne. Cause bloodshed. In Aztec culture, uh, it was common, if your troops hadn't been trained recently, you can just go and slaughter some people. I mean, it's perverse and foolish. It's not just evil. It's utterly ridiculous i mean it's very stupid this is not it's a stupid thing to go and burn stuff that you could have value from it's a stupid thing to kill people who could contribute something it's not just evil it's stupid all evil ultimately is stupid but the idea that the king legitimates his reign through blood is endemic to the crisis of the human family. What Christ does is he receives the matured evil of the human family 
Mankind has been fighting for 4,000 years since the creation of the world. They're always going back and forth, and things get worse and worse and worse and worse. The seed of the serpent grows and grows and grows and grows. Finally, a portion of mankind becomes so evil that they will literally crucify the God of heaven and earth. But it is in that very evil act that God breaks the cycle. Jesus, as king of kings, receives but does not respond in kind. And thus, what we might call the security spiral is broken. So let's close by taking a look at the specific language of 1 Samuel. And I hope with everything that I've said in mind, you will see the clarity of the thesis I have argued. When Israel demands a king, God says that he has rejected they have rejected me from being king over them. And the reasons that they demand a king is because Samuel's sons perverted justice. This was part of the trend in which um, one generation failed to transmit the name of God to the next generation. We see that the circumcision of the heart, one of the major features of the heart circumcision, is that there is fidelity that persists through generations. We haven't seen this come to its maturity yet in history, but I believe God is working it into the bones and blood of mankind. One of the things that I think we take for granted today, and we might even cringe at it because it's so cliche, you know, you hear the Dalai Lama say, war, as, war is outdated, right? And you kind of cringe at that. But that's a remarkable thing that that's taken for granted. That war is not just an innate and good part of the world. No Roman would say in principle that warfare is evil. No, warfare is a sacred thing, intrinsically. You don't have the world without warfare. We should thank God that some of these things, even though they do not correspond to robust action, that they're taken for granted. Because they were not always taken for granted. But Israel demands a king, and thus that re is a rejection of God as king. God is the one who secures their inheritance. And what, what does Samuel say? Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king for him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now, pay attention to this. It's actually quite straightforward, the reason why this doesn't um, constitute a criticism of kingship in principle. It's not, these will be the ways of kings. It is, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. In other words, the specific king that I'm talking about is the one who's going to reign over you. Now, pay attention. He will take your sons. He will appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariot. The military infrastructure. He will build a military-industrial complex. He will draft your sons into warfare. You want to trust in a human king to secure your inheritance? Well, he's going to take from your inheritance. You think the only way that you're going to be able to safely occupy your plot of land is through a human king? He's going to take from that plot of land. Think the only way that you're going to be able to build your family in safety is to trust in a human king instead of God? Well, he's going to take your sons and shed their blood. He will appoint for himself, for himself, in other words, not for God, but for himself, commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, someone to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. This is all stuff which could be used to build works of glory and beauty, but instead it's going to build swords, going to shed blood. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his slaves or his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain, your vineyards, and give it to his officers, his servants. These military officers, which are going to uh, create the uh, a continued standing army and a trained professional military, well, he's got to reward them somehow. He's going to take from you. The whole society, in other words, becomes ordered around perpetual warfare. The very legitimacy of the king whom Israel has chosen to allegedly give them security is going to depend on bloodshed. So what happens when you've already secured your inheritance? How is the next generation going to legitimate himself? More blood. Large militaries will create reasons for their own existence. We look at the world, we see the great powers tend to have great militaries, but it's, it's an illusion. It is productivity and creativity which produces a great power. In other words, what we would call economic growth, which means, you know, you take a raw material, shape it into something specific and beautiful. That means you're richer because you don't hold most of your wealth in currency. You don't use it for comfort. No, you use it for beauty. That's what surpluses are meant to be about. But then nations, they, uh, they don't trust in God. So they take that wealth and they devote it to militarization. And that leads ultimately to overextension and thus destruction. Or do we see the king recenters the whole society around warfare because that is what everything depends upon now. That is the great crime which is produced by Israel's sin. And that is the great crisis of Israel's history all the way down to the exile. Ultimately, it ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in fire and blood. But there's been warfare the whole way through. And what have they been using the temple for? I mean, using the temple to plunder it and give wealth to pay off foreign invaders. This is what they take to be their security. And that is the problem. And that is what this law is all about. It is not a prohibition on kingship, per se. It is rather a prohibition on the kind of kingship which people are used to. Not the normal kind, because it is God's way which is really normal but the accepted abnormality of the kingship of blood, which is overcome by Jesus Christ, where we recognize that God's sovereignty is realized in creativity and beauty and glory and love and not bloodshed and death and self-reliance and building militaries and spying on your alleged friends. I mean, it's the whole international system and the language of friendship is a massive fraud. Well, you know, there's no trust. It's just constant spying on each other. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. If our security ultimately depends on the size of our military, if we cannot trust that there is a God in heaven who will act to vindicate those who call upon his name, then, they're gen then the international system is genuinely a tragedy. And so I think we can see in the prohibition on this kind of kingship in Scripture implications for very concrete and, 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 and real things in, in the modern world. Again, I haven't formulated this in response to the current conflict, but it, I think, does have relevance to it.
Don't want to make that the main subject of the video, but the, the question is really, let's say that one power is genuinely threatened by another. Is that power warranted to seek to protect its own security by preemptive war? I mean, obviously, there's no one who has clean hands by these standards. But this is what it really comes down to. When we see that belief and faith is not just about our personal life. It's about the lives of nations. And if the guardian of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, if the king of kings acts in wisdom and faithfulness to those who call on his name, that has profound and dramatic implications for the way that we behave in the real true world. And if it's naive to think this way, then do we really believe that this is real? Are we willing to stake the very existence of our nations on trust in God? I say, if you study church history, you will find that God consistently acts in miraculous ways to defend his people when they finally are pressed to call upon his name. We have many feast days where God does precisely this. Remember how Eve is spoken of as a kind of city. Cain built a city for his son. The very same word is used when God built Eve for Adam. And Adam is the son of God. Adam has a son. That son is called the image of Adam by implication. Adam is the image of God. Thus, Adam is the son. That's, what, that's why Luke calls Adam son of God. Well, Eve is named Eve after God makes the promise of the seed who's going to crush the head of the death-dealing serpent. Thus, she's called the mother of all living because he is the life giver, not just a, a trite statement that she's going to be the mother of all human beings. No, she's given this name specifically after there's the prophecy of the serpent. We see the same kind of thing where at the end of the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, Lamech names Noah in view of the prophecy that he is going to bring rest, Sabbath, to the world through the flood, and this is a type of the Messiah. It all wraps together in a beautiful way. Well, there's a promise that God makes to Eve, which is fulfilled personally in the Virgin Mary. And so she is the new Eve. And so why do you think Mary is called the New Jerusalem? In our liturgic, she's called New Jerusalem. And that's why the Theotokos, the mother of God, the Virgin Mary, is associated so closely with the protection of cities. There's a reason for all of this. When the, em when the emperors of New Rome invoked the protection of the Theotokos, under the kingship and reign and power of Jesus Christ, God sent a storm to destroy the fleet of the invading Arab power. When we sing to thee the champion leader, to thee the champion leader, do we offer thanks for victory. We are remembering God's faithfulness in protecting his people when they call upon him and trust him. In the West, the Battle of Lepanto is commemorated in the feast called Our Lady of the Rosary, which is, um, which is about the military victory that God gives to protect from the invading powers. This is the upshot of all of the discussion of kingship. This is not an abstraction, and it is most certainly not 
about the merits of republicanism. The scripture has no vision of republicanism. The rise of the kingship in the society of Israel is coextensive with the growth of the nation into a more intimately united society. It becomes a matured body politic, and thus it acquires a distinct personal head. But remember, we're not just talking about an individual. No, the point here is that a society's stability is guaranteed, or at least um, uh, uh, provided for, by the persistence of family name through time. The House of David has the royal prerogative as an inheritance. And this is a concept which you see outside of Israel. Uh, for example, the, the rise of the emperors of Rome, the second settlement of Augustus. These are personal prerogatives which are given to Augustus in his uh, being head of the family. That's why the, one of the titles of the emperor is Pater Patriae, father of the fatherland. The political structure of the Roman world during the Principate is centered on the heads of aristocratic families swearing oaths of allegiance in the name of all of their descendants. That's one of the reasons, I think, that in the integrated kind of society that Scripture envisions as being governed by a king, it's important that there be family relations which govern the persistence of the crown through time because it's these family relationships which then create new and newly united structures of kinship families intermarry with each other in theory the reason that all the royal families of europe were intermarrying with each other is because it binds their family destiny together of course that was hardly realized perfectly but that's the idea which is important. This is why there's a temptation to intermarry with all of the daughters of the kings of the nations. So that's the long and short of it. Uh, I know we've been kind of all over the place. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, uh, again, I'm sorry I haven't made a video in, in a while, but um, uh, I hope you got something out of it. Um, and thank you so much for listening, and uh, please do pray for me. Uh, I hope you have a blessed Lent. And uh, while I've emphasized in this video that... Faith means more than faith in their personal life. Remember, and this might sound like a truism, but you can't say truism without saying true. You know, God really is faithful. When we say really is faithful, that's the way the world really works. And um, this is true in so many concrete ways. You know, I've seen so many cases, both in my life and the lives of my friends, where at the time... A specific event looked like it was just a reflection of the randomness and cynicism of the world. And then years later, in hindsight, I realized, oh my gosh, that was divine intervention. So if someone out there needs to hear that, I hope that you are edified by it. So say your daily prayers, go to church, and please pray for me. And I will see you later.